Several months ago, thousands of companies around the country that had never utilized teleworking before sent their workforce home in an attempt to curb the spread of COVID-19. Many people expected that it would only be a few weeks before they returned to their offices and normal routines. Months have passed and hundreds of thousands of workers continue to work from their living rooms, kitchens, and bedrooms. Working from home has produced mixed results for both workers and their employers. While productivity has risen, in some cases dramatically, virtual offices have reduced informal communication, the so-called water cooler talk that promotes quick problem solving and long-term innovation. The lines between work and personal life have been further blurred. Some workers feel less connected and productive working in isolation. Overall, the future of telework seems bright, but as they say, it's early days. My guest today on Hardly Working is Clive Thompson, a science and technology journalist who writes for outlets such as the New York Times Magazine, Wired, and Smithsonian. He is also the author of a recent book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. On today's episode, Clive discusses his recent piece for the New York Times Magazine, What If Working From Home Goes On Forever? Looking at the economic and social implications of an entirely remote workforce, bringing in both academic research and anecdotal evidence, Clive presents a view of the future of work that is both challenging and compelling. Clive Thompson, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. It's good to be here. Really, really enjoyed your piece. It presented something of a Sunday morning magazine emergency for me (laughs) as I dove into my New York Times. I don't often actually spend that much time in the magazine, but then I I saw it and I thought, wow, this this looks really great. And I have to say, I think it's one of the most well-reported and in-depth pieces that I've had a chance to see or read since the crisis began on this topic of, you know, telecommuting and the growth of remote work. So really a pleasure to be able to make this connect so quickly. I'd like to start out, this is a obviously a podcast about work and vocation and career. I'd like to give my guests a chance to talk at the beginning a little bit about how they got to where they are right now in their careers. And the main reason I ask that that question is, that I think that people sometimes have a pretty limited imagination about what they can do. So tell us where you started and how you got to where you are. Sure, sure. I'm a bit of a funny case insofar as I I think I, I knew fairly young that I was interested in two things. I was very interested in computers because I'm of the age, you know, I was a kid, I was a teenager when all those first generation of personal computers emerged, like the Commodore 64, you know, that you could plug into your TV. You know, I sort of wrote about, a bit about this in my last book. This is this catalytic moment for making computing, you know, a much more accessible thing. It turned a whole generation of teenagers onto computing, including me. So I loved computing, but I also loved writing. I loved books. I loved reading. My parents wouldn't buy me a computer because my mother worried that I would just play video games all the time and drop out of school. What she didn't realize, of course, is that you had to, you had to make video games if you wanted to play anything on those computers back then. So at any rate, the point being, I never went down the computing path, but I loved writing. And so I decided I wanted to be a writer. And I went off and, you know, just I did a degree in political science and English and worked in campus newspapers and learned how to write. Never lost my interest in that nerdy computer stuff, though. Like I could sort of see in the late 80s and early 90s, this version of the Internet beginning to emerge. I knew about, you know, the ARPANET. I had been using BBSs and whatnot in the mid 90s. And I'd done all sorts of crazy stuff. You talk about, you know, job trajectories. And when I graduated, there was no journalism work at all. I was in Canada and Canada had a quite serious recession in the early 90s. The early 90s recession was, was light in the US, but serious in Canada. 
And most of the major papers had not hired anyone in like a decade. So I did a bunch of, I was, I was everything from a, I was a street musician. I was a database administrator for arts organizations. I worked for an arts organization. I did all sorts of crazy, you know, odd jobs to bring money in. And eventually I decided if, if no one's going to hire me, I would become a freelance writer, which is a, <laughs> a polite way of, of saying, you know, I work for myself when there's not much work around. But around the time that I decided to do that in the mid nineties, the internet was sort of, you know, becoming a thing. Not a lot of reporters who were senior at that point in time thought it was worth covering. Like, you know, in the, in the early years, it seemed like a strange little fad, like these stupid little websites and whatnot. But I, I was, of course, you know, bedazzled by it all because it was sort of this, this culture that I glimpsed as, as a teenager moving into the mainstream. And I could sort of immediately see, oh my goodness, this is going to touch upon every aspect of life from the way we, you know, communicate, which affects the way we socialize, the way we learn about the world, the way we work. I could see all these things emerging and I said, I, I, want to, I want to write about the social and cultural and political transformations that this is going to bring. And I, so I decided that in like basically 1994 and I've been doing that for 25 years since I've been lucky enough to never stop being interested in it, right? You know, there's always something new coming along. You know, I, I wrote for magazines in Canada originally. I moved to the US in, in 1998, started trying to figure out how to penetrate the, you know, somewhat baffling... <laughs> <laughs> magazine industry down here. It took some time. I didn't know anyone at all. But the core thing that I'm interested in has been consistent really since I was a teenager, I would say. That's really such a great story because, it, again, it points out to me that it's typically our deepest and most enduring interests that we wind up filling our days with in some way when we are move out of you know childhood adolescence and into the workforce. And we find ourselves just doing the things that often, the things that we just really enjoy. I think it's underappreciated aspect of vocation in particular. That's a great story. Okay, so your piece. Let's just get into some of the issues that you talk about. First, just, just give us an overview. Why this piece and how, what was it like putting it together? Well, the piece, in a weird way, was challenging because we struggled at the, at the outset to figure out the mandate of it, right? So in the beginning of March, or again, by the middle of March, it was clear that a lot of American society had begun working from home in every sector that had the opportunity to do so, right? You know, so any sort of white collar work, any sort of service work that isn't done face to face, you know, that's done over the phone, those types of things. At first, we sort of thought, well, let me go out there and explore what's happening in every field of, of work. So I, I talked to doctors, you know, who are doing remote work. And I talked to teachers, you know, in post-secondary and elementary and secondary school. And I talked to office workers. And then we sort of reconvened after a few weeks of me doing that reporting and realized that that was fast. That each of those areas was fascinating, but so huge and with different challenges that we could probably do a separate story on each of those, right? And so we should focus on, we could pick one and focus on it. Do medicine, you know, do education or do office work. But, you know, the, the three of those would not, will not fit in one piece. So we decided for this piece, you know, and, and there may be other ones that I write on those other areas to focus on the office stuff. And it was kind of funny, I'll tell you, because at the beginning of the research in March, my first thought was, I need to talk to a lot of different people at a lot of different companies to find out what their experiences are like, because I was worried they might be going back to the office like four or five or six weeks from then, right? I thought like this, this will be a brief window when I can report. And of course, the more I actually called up CEOs and managers and employees, the more I learned that they were all regarding this as 
certainly a long near-term moment that they were unsure of how safe it would be to go back to the office. CEOs were leery of asking their staff to go back. Like, you know, what many of them said to me was, well, you know, let's say we get the all clear in July or something like that. The best advice of the health authorities in our state and our governors say that, you know, with these precautions in place, we can come back. Will my employees want to come back? Will all of them want to come back? And so I quickly learned that, oh, this is really interesting. Everyone out there in the corporate world is regarding this as a, as a kind of a shift, a significant shift. And so that really led the reporting into thinking about what that meant. And then it also made me think, okay, well, now I need to learn about what we know over 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of remote work. Like what, what, do, what does a research show about the way remote work works? So that became talking to, you know, a couple dozen academics and reading, you know, all the literature and the white papers and the, and the meta surveys. So it, it was interesting how this one evolved. Often with stories, I think I have a stronger sense of the mandate when I begin, but this one was a bit of a moving target. So it was a real education as I went along. What was the biggest surprise to you in your research? The thing that you found that you weren't expecting other than, wow, this is going to be longer, you know, a longer term deal than we initially thought. What did you find that you were like, hmm, I never would have guessed? Right. One thing that I found, I guess, is that a lot of CEOs were quite candid. And this is quite interesting to me because I didn't expect this. When I asked them, okay, your, your employees are all at home now because they have to be. And you've discovered, you know, to your delight, to your surprise, certainly, that your productivity has remained quite high. Everyone's still getting their stuff done, maybe even a little better than before. So, you know, I would ask them, you know, why hadn't you done this before? You know, like if these benefits are there and the possibility is there and it opens up these interesting doors that you can now walk through, why, why not before? And they were all quite candid. They said, you know, basically I was afraid I was afraid that if I couldn't see them sitting there, that they would go home and they would just Netflix and chill. And it was, it was very interesting how candid they were about this. Like they were, you know, they were like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm old school. And, and, you know, when, when they say old school, they weren't necessarily old people in their thirties told me this, right. They, but they were old school in the sense that like, they really, they had this strong sense, this fear, you know, maybe a, a pessimistic view <laughs> of, of their employee's nature that, that stuff simply wouldn't happen and the trains would not arrive on time. That really, I found interesting, surprising, touching in a way that they were sort of reflective about why they hadn't done this before. But they, you know, that was a common answer as I asked every manager and every employer about what, the, what this was like for them and, and what the surprises it brought for them. And that, that was one that really interested me. That's really interesting. I mean, and I think it goes to sort of a question about work that we don't really reflect on, which is why, why do we work? You know, and the obvious answer is, well, got to eat, don't need to work. But I think it makes clear to me that your description of that, something I've been thinking about, which is that work provides a whole host of things to us that have nothing to do with money. And that people don't just stop working. It's actually not the way that we're built, built to work. And we're pretty, when we don't work, that adversarial thing between managers and workers leads to believe that people have to be constantly prodded and, and guarded and, and surveilled in order to make sure that they're working, at least in this kind of office work arena that yeah. we're talking about. It's not yeah. everything. That's just not what we're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I've over the years, I've spoken to all manner of, you know, researchers who studied, you know, office work, 
One of my favorite interviews is with Teresa Amabile. Am I pronouncing that right? Amabile or Amabile? And she's at Harvard and she's done wonderful, wonderful studies of kind of what makes people productive and happy and thriving at work. She and other researchers have, you know, pretty reliably found that trust and autonomy are really treasured by, by a lot of employees when they're given, you know, trust that they'll, that they can work the way that they, that they ought to work. And when they're given autonomy to make decisions and not constantly stared at as someone standing about the stopwatch, then they really dig into the work in, in a way they, they feel better about it. They get more energized about doing it. They get more productive. Like all these things really emerge when you trust employees and, and give them the, the ability to call their own shots to, a, to as much as they can, you know? And I think this is, this is one of the things that has come up in this work from home research was that it required some of that, you know, some of that trust and some of that, you know, okay, it's up to you to determine how and when you're going to work. And as long as you get that stuff done, you're good. And this, this tracks very strongly with what the research shows because, you know, historically, only a very small number of people work from home routinely. Like we're talking five to 10% maybe of the, of the American, you know, workforce. But, you know, the ones that did it voluntarily and where they were given support from their employer to do that, their satisfaction levels are much higher than the average employee. And some of that you can attribute to not having a commute. And some of that you can attribute to maybe seeing their family more. But some of it comes from enjoying that level of autonomy that they're given and the trust are given from their employer. It's very significant stuff, very highly motivating. Yeah, I think I've certainly felt that in my own work since the COVID crisis started. How much of this is a demonstration of an enduring behavioral characteristic? How much of it is adrenaline? That's one of the things that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that I've kind of been thinking about. It's like, I've had really quite a productive time in the last few months. And I know that's true of our other scholars at AEI. And I wonder how much of that is like, you know, kind of this all hands on deck. Right feeling that's come along with this crisis where you just, there's just it's such a rich environment to be thinking in. And yeah. so we go and we think and we think and we yeah. read and, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's definitely a concern. And it's one I heard from a lot of folks, ranging from employees to employers. The way I thought about it was, it reminded me of a, of a well-known, you know, psychological finding that goes back a hundred years now, the Hawthorne effect, also known as the, the novelty effect. It came about a very fascinating study, like it was done in the, I think it was called the Hawthorne Factory, which hence the Hawthorne Effect. And they, they were trying to do, it was one of early Taylorism experiments in, in productivity. And, they, and so they experimentally increased the lighting in the factory and productivity went up, people were working harder. And they thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And then they also tried experimentally lowering the lights and productivity went up. <laughs> and basically, any change, any novelty in a situation elicits higher levels of productivity, but they're also temporary. It regresses to the mean after a little while, right? So you get this boost. And it's kind of funny because I've sort of used that as this weird little personal hack. I find that if I'm stuck, if I'm getting stuck in the way I'm organizing my to-dos or the way that I'm writing or whatnot, I make a change in my environment. I write in a different word processor. I write on a different computer. I go into a different location, physical location. I'm trying to trigger that novelty effect because I know that it won't last, like it's a temporary boost. Mm -hmm. So when everyone started telling me that they were getting these sudden boosts in productivity, that's one of the things I immediately thought about. There's, there's a couple things going on. One is exactly what you said, the adrenaline. You know, frankly, many employees told me that they were worried about their company going under because there is an enormous softening 
in demand. If you have anything, if you're, if you're any company that has any sort of, you know, consumer focus that has any sales, anything that's involved in hospitality, there's just been, it's, it's been horrifying, right? You know, the sort of slowdown in business. And everyone's aware that their employee may not have more than a few months of money in the bank before they have to start laying people off. So yeah, there, there's a combination of the novelty effect. Oh, wow. This makes us work harder and panic about keeping your company going. A few of the more thoughtful CEOs said that they were frankly worried about their employees burning out. One, one gentleman who runs a software company in Indianapolis said, yeah, they're all, they're just killing it. They're hitting every target. They're closing deals. But he's going, there is no way that we can sustain this. They're going to burn out. They're going to start having problems. And then we're going to have the problems that come from managing those problems, right? It's a curious moment. It's why it's a little hard when I was trying to sort of generalize a little bit in the piece, I was trying to lean as much as possible on what we know about 30 to 40 years of research into work from home, because that stuff is a little more solid and generalizing from the moment we're in right now is a little trickier. Definitely something is happening now, right? Partly because this pandemic, it doesn't seem clear that this seems like it might be a year of adjustment or more, right? So there's, you know, something's going on. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. We can learn a little bit from the past, although it's it's made a little unusual by the present. So yeah, all these things are all these things are in the air. It's it's a very it's a very weird moment to be trying to grapple with what's going on. But but every company has to. They, they, it is a reality right now. So that's kind of where I wanted to go next, which was like changes in business practice as a result of this. I was really intrigued by the story that you start out with in the piece, which is probably why you used it. The guy who sells the robot vacuum yes. cleaners, and he's selling actually selling into a sector which is kind of really being hit pretty hard by the covid crisis so hotels and airports and you know places where a lot of business travel is going on his sudden realization that i don't have to spend a week getting ready for a business trip for a 15 minute meeting where i ship myself and all these vacuums out to show somebody and try to persuade them i can just do this online and people say, yep, that's exactly what I need. <laughs> and we're done. Now, having done a little bit of sales myself, that would be just an enormous boost in productivity in and of itself, not to have to do all that stuff. Did you find that? I mean, you use that story yeah. for the yeah. other examples of that going on. Absolutely. In fact, I spoke to several salespeople because I was sort of trying to figure out, it was actually one of the areas of business I was, I was most interested in because it is so traditionally face-to-face. So specifically sales where, you know, you're trying to sell someone a, a $30,000, $40,000 contract, $100,000 contract, a million-dollar contract for something. like That's, you know, those are deals that normally you really want to establish the trust that comes from face-to-face because you know you're going to be dealing with, the client's going to be dealing with you and you're going to be dealing with the client maybe for years, right? Early on, I was reaching out to all sorts of salespeople in all sorts of sectors and I spoke to several. I ended up using, using that story because it was so delightful and, I, and so visual. You know, one can immediately sort of understand that like, wow, a robot's a thing that you want to look at. And so it's kind of amazing that people would buy that, you know? But I I spoke to people who sell like contracts for software. Like, for example, I spoke to one of the salespeople for for Slack itself, that company, because, you know, they make their money off large commercial contracts. Like a company will say, okay, we are going to transition, you know, our company onto Slack as a way to talk to each other. We need, you know, 5,000, 10,000 licenses. And that's a big order. So that's a sales thing. And those people normally do it face-to-face. And the gentleman I talked to had said that, he was similarly surprised at how well things were working, how deeply they could get into the weeds, how much trust they could establish, and how much he enjoyed not being on the road that much. Because salespeople, I mean, they're on the road 
two thirds of the month, maybe or more, you know, yeah. like, and if you've got a couple kids and this one for Slack and several others I spoke to all do, it was suddenly delightful to be like, all right, I'm done my work at, I mean, maybe it goes late. Maybe I'm I'm calling people on the West coast at like eight o'clock at night or whatnot. But then it's like, I'm just there. I'm not traveling home. So they all really enjoy that. They found it amazing that it could happen. And to me, the sales thing is going to be a, one of the most interesting pieces of the puzzle to look at going forward, because it's clear that like salespeople are gregarious folks. They actually, they, they like the face-to-face, mm-hmm. you know, they enjoy that. That's one, that's one of the reasons they got into the job. They're extroverts. And so getting on the plane and going to see someone, you know, it's, it's, it's work, but it's, is what brings them to life. That, that's what get, that's what brings their best self out. Right. And so they're not necessarily going to be as happy doing it entirely over zoom, but you know, they also like some of these remote possibilities that it offers. And maybe it offers the ability to, to hit up clients that you wouldn't be able to have the money to afford to go and visit. Right. You know, cause if you have to get in a plane to go somewhere, well, if the contract isn't that big, mm-hmm. Is it worth three days of your time to go and do that and maybe go back? So, you know, it actually opens up, several of them told me, maybe they can start reaching out to an entirely different class of client that they would not otherwise do. That's also interesting, right? That's amazing. There's no end to the downstream effects. Effects on this, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the idea that it could change the market of where your company sells to and goes into is, is very interesting. And then, of course, you know, something that, only came up very briefly in this piece, but you know, I think is certainly interesting for people who listen to your podcast is the question of hiring and talent, right? So like that company I spoke to, Go Noodle, they're in my story. They're based in Nashville and everyone works in Nashville. The CEO has also a residence in Atlanta where he's actually temporarily sort of stuck, but basically everyone's in Nashville. And he told me that, that uh, you know, he was again, sort of like a traditional person who liked to have everyone there and really enjoyed the vibe that came from that. And so he had never really wanted to hire remote employees because he thought that they're, in a way, it almost wouldn't be fair to them because they're, they're, they're separate from that physical culture. He wasn't sure how well they'd integrate. But he had been working with a woman down in New Mexico on contract, and she'd been doing amazing work for him. And she'd been flying up to Nashville a couple of times, but mostly working from New Mexico. And she'd been doing increasing amounts of work when COVID hit. And so he just said, oh, you just hired her full time. He's like, okay, you're our first full time employee. You're in New Mexico. You know, you may, you may come up to Nashville every once in a while, but you're working for New Mexico. And she's, you know, she was in that when I, I had that moment where I went to like a, like a happy hour where a bunch of employees were all sitting around drinking and she was just, you know, in there with them, you know? So, so hiring is really interesting. What does it mean when you can start saying, okay, I don't need everyone to be here. They could be somewhere else. Maybe you're in a city where it's hard to lure people either because you're really expensive. You're one of these coastal cities. Where it's just brutal. You know, New York, you know, moving here, it's just brutal, you know, for your space. Or maybe you're in a really second or third tier city and you're going to have trouble luring a 20 something who wants to live in a place like New York City and doesn't want to move to, you know, Iowa or something like that. Right. So all these all these things open up in fascinating ways. I'll stop rambling. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. It was it's an angle I hadn't thought of. I mean, we were already in kind of a, a national labor market, the yeah. way that recruiting works. You're just pulling people from all over the place. But if you don't actually have to move them, that's even better. I get some savings out of salaries and you know sure. quite as much. I wrote a piece for another site not too long ago about the effect of this on kind of central business districts. Oh, very interesting. Yes. Yes. Like there are so many implications, you know, say take Manhattan, you know, if 
a bunch of the banks decide that they're going to shrink their footprint. You know, they're not going to completely abandon Manhattan, but they're going to shrink their footprint because sure. the potential effects of that on real estate values, on yep. on the whole infrastructure of smaller businesses that sort of float those larger ones in terms of providing all the services to the 20,000 employees that are coming in could potentially be very significant. Did you come across that? Absolutely. Yes. I had several conversations that never really made it into the, in, into the piece with, you know, work from home thinkers and economists who've been sort of pondering what this might mean for real estate. You know, when they say real estate, that's sort of eluding a term. It's like there's real estate, but there's also the entire economies that grew up around business districts, right? So a lot of restaurants, you know, dry cleaners, you know, you name it. They're all there. And and that is true in, the, in a downtown core of a city. It's also true in, in an industrial park, right? You know, like in, you go to an industrial park and there's like a bunch of kind of strip malls nearby that, you know, have restaurants and have bars and have gyms and have things that are there because that's where those people transact their business during the day. And so if those people stop going to those industrial parks, then those areas themselves also become potentially affected by this. So there's there are a bunch of I think urban planners would probably be very, you know, very concerned to think about how they react to the way this might change. Because again, you don't need, you know, you don't need a big change. Like, let's say like even 10, 15% of people stopped routinely going down to the downtown core work area. That's enough for those companies to notice, right? I mean, like we're not talking about high margin businesses here, you know, most of, the, most of these, most of these restaurants are some of the most fragile businesses imaginable. You take their clientele down by 10% a year for lunch, they'll notice that, right? But on the other hand, one thing that's really interesting is it also opens up opportunities in other areas. Like, so the, the gentleman, the scholar the, at the Harvard Business School that did the study of the patent office that I reported on, where they had a, you know, a work from anywhere policy and the productivity of the people that went to work from anywhere, it went up. So in the contact, while I was talking to him, he was, he sort of mentioned this, this thing that's happened in a couple of cities. And I, I'm unfortunately I, blanking on the exact one. It feels like it was in Tennessee. I might be wrong about that. It might've been Tulsa. I'm not sure. They, they basically set up, essentially, the city essentially invested in setting up kind of a, a co-working space, like kind of like a civic version of WeWork with the, with the, with the point being that if people can work from anywhere, but they don't necessarily want to work from their home, why don't we do something that is like a hot desking area where they can come and they can work and it's got really blazingly fast Wi-Fi, which may not be available in their neighborhood because rural and exurban broadband is not great in parts of the city. So they essentially looked at it as like a like you know a business, you know, a business improvement thing, and it worked incredibly well. They actually got all these hot desking remote employees that were like, Yeah, this is great. I'd rather come somewhere. So like there's there's a lot of interesting things that that cities that are not in these big expensive coastal cities could do to really seize on this moment and say hey come here have a house that's way bigger and way cheaper than what you could get in these things but you know we're also going to make it easier for you maybe to like have like a you know a 3 minute drive from your house or a bicycle ride or a walk from your house a place to go and work and and so there there's you're going to see some areas that get economically hit by this and other ones that maybe seize it as an opportunity and 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 grow something new, right? Do you think employers are looking at this as a have they started, I guess, to think about this in terms of cutting their own overhead? Mm-hmm. If you're not renting or owning for that yeah. matter space, or you need less of it, is that something they're thinking about in terms of, you know, this is a way to boost margin? Absolutely. I mean, like 
particularly in in cities, you know, expensive cities like the company I spoke to in Nashville. Nashville is a super expensive city to operate in. Any of the coastal cities, really any major city. I mean, it's like we've seen, you know, we've seen even in like quote unquote mid-sized cities, the price of real estate going up a lot. Particularly for a small new firm, that becomes a really big thing. For a company like Nationwide, like I wrote about them and how they're closing, you know, five or six smaller offices, it's a bit less of an issue. You know, when you when you're in the tens or hundreds of thousands of employees, your real your real estate footprint is big, but it's your your salaries that are really the, the commanding chunk of what's going on. But a new company that maybe only has 20 or 30 people, your real estate is is a significant chunk. Your rent is a significant chunk of your operating stuff. You're early, you're young, you're growing, you have, you know, you're still not profitable yet. So anything that gets you there small new firms. And I will tell you actually, by the way, here's, here's an interesting story. So 10 years ago, I wrote a piece for the report on Business Magazine published by the Globe and Mail in Toronto. A friend of mine was an editor there and he'd been bugging me for a story. And I said, okay, I've got one for you. And I wrote it and it was fascinating. It was about how around about 2010, I was discovering a trend, which is that I was writing about software startups and I would frequently call up a startup and, and you know, they had some interesting product. And I'd say, you know, let's meet and you can tell me about it. And they go, all right, here, come to the Starbucks. And I'd meet at the Starbucks and we'd talk and we'd have a long chat. I would discover they had like maybe, they'd been around for a year or two. They had maybe 15 or 20 employees and they had sales of a couple million a year and they were doing pretty well. And they were on track to grow and become a real thing. And maybe people were looking to buy them. And at some point I'd say, this is great. You know, show me your office. And, and like, they'd be like, well, you know, let's just stay in this, in the Starbucks. And eventually it came out that they didn't have an office. They'd been around for three years. They had 15 or 20 employees. They were selling millions of dollars worth of stuff a year. And they, they had no office because they didn't want one because they were all 20 something or early 30 something entrepreneurs who regarded an office as a huge sunk. People in Gen X or boomers, when they were founding a company, they didn't feel that they were real until they physically had an office. That was the moment when they felt like they had made it, right? You know, when there was like a glass door with their corporate logo on it. That was that felt like being real. But for this generation of younger entrepreneurs, so I guess you could roughly call millennials or Gen Z or whatever, they had none of those associations. They'd grown up online, grown up interacting online, and when they investigated an office, they were like this just seems like we're just absorbing a huge amount of cost for no reason at all. And I don't know what's going on. So that was really, really interesting to me. And I think, I think some of that logic you will see, particularly with smaller firms right now, they're going to be looking at this moment and thinking, why do we need an office? Let's shift here a little bit. I was really intrigued by the research that you cited from Timothy Golden about the limitations of remote work in terms yeah. of satisfaction. So if you could talk about that. A little bit. Yeah, sure. So Timothy Golden is an interesting gentleman because he has really been one of the longest scholars in studying work from home. He's been doing this for a couple of decades. And so I wanted to find out, you know, what the big picture was from him. And a couple of really interesting findings came out of that. You know, he was the one who really synthesized it for me, which is that overall, generally, when employees are allowed to work from home and given support from their employers and autonomy, their satisfaction goes up. So it's, it's a win on both sides. Their productivity goes up and their satisfaction goes up. But you know, he also told me, and I heard this from every other scholar who studies work from home, is that there are things you lose, right? So one is the social connection that comes from physically being with other people. The single one of the one of the biggest complaints of people that work from home that Dr. Golden told me is is isolation. People feel they're cut out. 
conversations that are happening organically inside the office. And that can mean everything from, you know, just feeling sad that you're not there to missing opportunities, right? New projects emerge because people are, you know, sort of banding stuff around over the coffee machine or at lunch, and you're not there for that. So you can't get in on it. You can't help shape it. And so it can become a career development issue that people sometimes feel. And so one of the things that was really fascinating that Golden told me was that there's been a bunch of work that has looked at the question of sort of a hybrid model where someone is working from home much of the time, but in the office a certain set amount of hours a week. And what they found was that as work from home rose from, say, zero hours to, you know, to five to 10 to whatnot, job satisfaction increased and happiness increased. And around 15 hours a week working from home, those increases plateaued. They didn't go down, but they stopped going up. And so what that would lead you to hypothesize is that, well, maybe there's sort of a middle ground where you can get many of the advantages with work from home. If you were in there 15 to 20 to 25 hours a week working from home, but you were in the office, the other 15, you know, odd hours a week that you could kind of do a hybrid and you would get a much happier employee with more autonomy. You'd get higher productivity, but you would also get the benefit of those hard to measure cultural, creative, synthetic opportunities that come being face to face. And I'll tell you, you know, the funny thing is that's what the research says. And that is what several employers told me they're thinking about going forward. They're like, well, maybe we won't be fully remote, but we'll have days when teams come in so they can be face to face. And maybe that'll help them out because a lot of employees told me, well, say we do reopen our office, guidelines suggest that we should be more physically separate inside the office. Well, that means spacing the desks out. And that means we actually can't fit 100% of our employees in here anymore. We actually maybe can fit 60 to 70%. And so Actually, you can sort of see that dovetailing nicely with this with this hybrid model, because if you can't fit more than 60% of your office at any given time with social distancing, then it makes a lot of sense to say, let's have staggered hours. Some people are in, some people are out, and we can kind of maybe get the best of both worlds. The last thing I'll say on this is that, interestingly, this dovetails with a trend that I identified about six or seven years ago in Wired. I was writing about work from home. And I talked to a bunch of software companies who said that they had, they had moved towards this hybrid model where they would have Tuesday and Thursday from noon until five o'clock, we want people in the office. The rest of the week, you can work wherever you want. If you like the office, work from there. If you like a cafe, work from there. If you like homework from there. And that got them the benefits of all their software developers who love working from home, getting their best stuff done, working from home, but they were all there some of the times they could keep communication going. And if you were to ask me to predict one of the more likely outcomes that's going to come out of this experiment, this COVID experiment and work from home, it's that this hybrid model is going to emerge at a lot of companies. The way that you laid that out in the article and, and also what you just said, it strikes me as being profoundly like true about the social aspect of work. Uh, a number of years ago, I remember hearing this economist talk about this saying, we get siloed and we spend 90% of our time focused on the thing that we know. And we only spend 10% of the time thinking about the affiliated things that we probably should know about, but don't. And that that's actually where 90% of the value is yeah. in terms of creating new things. Yeah. I was really struck by your 
passage in your article about how in two years we may be paying a price in innovation yeah. Yeah. as a result of this. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, this is the thing is that with remote work, you can get higher productivity, which is great. But any company will tell you that productivity is not everything, right? Because you also need new ideas. You need breakthroughs, you know, maybe in a new product line, maybe in a new market to go into, maybe in a business process that will help you work better. The generation of ideas often comes from things that are on the face inefficient, dilly-dallying over lunch, you know, everyone leaving a little early and going for drinks, some people getting tied up talking in the hallway and being late for me. Things that, things that you know, we would say those are bad for productivity might be crucial, in fact, seem to be crucial for certain aspects of creativity and for culture and trust that allow a company to punch above its weight. And so this is, this is essentially the, the, the challenge, right? How to balance the benefits of an increased productivity with the cultivation of these sometimes harder to, to measure, but clearly valuable in the long haul aspects of culture and creativity inside a company. Yeah, those things that are kind of bubbling underneath the surface in an yeah. office where, I mean, when we were in an office, you know, incredibly valuable conversations sure. waiting to get lunch yeah. or in the elevator or, you know, I've been meaning yeah. to talk to you about this, you know, and you just happen to run into that person. Yeah. And there's also the, and you kind of point to this in the article about yeah. the limitations of virtual communication are such that that's right. 90% of all communication is nonverbal. And it isn't just in people's faces either, which I thought was really an interesting point that you made. Yeah. Step back from your Zoom so they can see your upper body because yes. there's going on. There's something creepy about this. When we're with each other, we don't we don't stand one foot apart and stare at each other. Yeah. Right. I mean, that <laughs> right. is that, right? But mo moreover, when you think about when you think about the physical office as a technology, it has really cool affordances, right? So, you know, on the one hand, you can hear other people talking, which is a problem. On the other hand, you can sort of eavesdrop on them in a way that can be kind of useful. You yeah. can be, oh, wait, that's happening. I need to know about that, you know, or like, oh, you guys are trying to solve this problem. I had the same thing two years ago. Here's what I did. You know, like there's actually kind of these very useful affordances of the sort of ambient acoustics and, yeah. and physical, like I'm lined up for the toilet. Yeah. thing that you know, we don't think of that as constraints on a technology but they are the office is a technology these are these are the constraints and they're they are hard to impossible to replicate online i mean that's what the guy from humanize benjamin labor he's been studying organizational dynamics for you know like 15 years since he was a, a student at mit and he said look you know theoretically anyone can send a slack message to anyone in your organization in practice they will communicate with the five people that they're closest to and so you won't get those crazy things so often. And I, I think there's really something to that. Absolutely. And you know, sometimes I wonder how much this has affected my own career, right? Because I have been a remote worker from all my offices for my entire career. But since, since I had that thing where, well, no one's going to hire me in the mid nineties. So I guess I'll <laughs> be a quote unquote freelance writer, which is a, you know, a, a, a sort of a polite way of saying I don't have a job. And, but, you know, but it worked out for me in the long run, but I have never really you know, I've written for the New York Times magazine for 20 years. I've never worked in the office. I go, I go into the office when I close a feature for a day. I've worked for Wired for 20 years, and I've never I've visited their office 10 times. You know, I've written for Smithsonian Magazine, a column for them for six years now, and I've physically never met anyone nor been anywhere near the office. And on the one hand, you know, hey, yay for my productivity. On the other hand, I'd like to meet those people. I'd like to yeah. be in that 
to talk with them. You know, we could probably generate some crazy ideas if I could hang out with them more, more directly like that. I feel that missing from my life. And so when people said, I worry about that stuff, I'm like, yeah, I can tell you, I, I know what it's like. And it's, it's not all fun, right? So last question, maybe you can carry this into the future of your research. But one of the things a lot of people have commented on is this idea of the digital divide as it's manifested in those who get to work from home and those. Sure. I don't know if you're planning to do something on essential workers yeah. and people who really don't have the option, mm-hmm. but I'm curious what your yeah. thoughts are. Yeah. Well, I mean, like what I discovered, it's a little hard to, to actually get good data on who works from home or who's allowed to work from home because all the apparatuses we have for for studying this, the Census of Bureau of Labor Statistics, they don't really, they don't chunk things out the way you'd want to. But the, the crudest sort of metric, I suppose you could see, is income. As income goes up, it's a pretty linear relationship between the ability to work from home, the option to work from home. So the more money you make, the more options you have to work from home. You don't have to, but you have the option. Yeah, you know, white collar workers, you know, managers, people in offices, people doing, you know, what I, Robert Reich back in the 90s would have called symbolic analyst work, you know, that's all there. But, you know, healthcare aides, people cleaning up any, any sort of physical environment, transportation workers, delivery folks, restaurants, bars. Yeah. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a significant chunk of the economy. I, I have trouble telling the exact percentage, but, you know, it's, you know, 50 to 60 or more, right? So they don't have any option to work from home at all, because most of what they do really cannot be done remotely or no, not with a breaking the business model. This is something that like, I'm certainly interested in writing about, except the stories are probably not going to be about, I mean, I don't think they would be about like, how can you make this remote? Because you can't. It's more like, what does like, you know, safe operating look like in this regard? And this is something I've been talking to. I mean, I live in Brooklyn and I have friends that own bars and I have friends that own restaurants and I've been chatting with them. And it is really, it is, it is really a conundrum because, okay, if it's, if what we're learning is that, you know, transmission doesn't seem to happen very well outdoors at all, right? That, which is great. That means that opens up a lot of opportunities for people to do stuff. But unfortunately, it seems to, it seems to happen, you know, when it happens pretty well indoors in badly ventilated areas. And like, <laughs> you've just described every dive bar in my neighborhood, right? Yeah. So what do you do? What I would like to write is I'd like to write about what the, what the adaptations, you know, might mean for there. You're already kind of seeing them a little bit in that, like, every bar and restaurant around us has begun very aggressively doing takeout, including stuff that, like, it's in a fascinating way, essentially is probably illegal and the city is turning a blind eye to it, right? Where it's like, you know, we're going to serve you a drink. It, you know, here's your, here's your pasta and here's two beers and just drink them on the sidewalk and try not to make a jerk of yourself. Right. And so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to see, well, will some of this start to be formalized? You know, like, like, you know, how will cities respond to these needs? Cause you know, one of the things, one of the things that's been really fascinating is like, and I'd love to write about this cause I've been writing a lot about transportation and, and these, you know, these new companies that have like little scooters for getting around and stuff like that and how they, how they might change the warp and woof of the way we navigate cities. Well, one of the things you discover here in New York City, and it's probably similar where you are, there's a lot less people driving anywhere because they're not commuting. So the streets are kind of, are kind of empty. And you're like, okay, well, what if we helped all these 
businesses out by letting people just set up some tables in the parking area and just close down the parking area. You know, so we need less parking anyway, because there's less cars and have a bunch of tables there. It's open air, much safer to sit there. And now you can got to get a couple more tables and help them. So I'm sort of, I'm intrigued. I'd like to talk to city planners. I'd like to, like to talk to companies that are in hospitality. I'd love to pinpoint this moment. I do have a story that I'm working on that is about this kind of micromobility, these micromobility companies, because I've got a feeling that they may actually do quite well out of COVID because people are very interested in forms of transportation that are not a bus, that are not a subway, that are maybe not even an Uber, but allow them to move around in the open air. And so like electric scooter is fantastic for that. Not very good for 30 miles, good for five miles, two miles. I don't know. So to me, the sort of adaptation of the parts of the, of the world that cannot work from home is an unbelievably interesting and commanding story that I, I want to start looking at more seriously. Well, we look forward to reading about it. You write for the magazine, you know, the New York Times Magazine, you write for Wired, you write anywhere else? Where else? Yeah, yeah. My primary places are I'm, I'm a contributing writer for the Times Magazine, so I write a few features for them a year. I'm a columnist, monthly columnist for Wired, and I write features for them. And I'm an irregular columnist on the history of technology for Smithsonian. Those are the main places. There's a bunch of, you know, I, I write for anyone who's interested in what I do. So sometimes I've written for some Canadian magazines and some business magazines and for Mother Jones occasionally, technology stuff. So there's a disparate stuff. But the three main places are, yeah, Times Magazine, Wired, and Smithsonian. You can look for me there. Social media, are you on Twitter? Twitter, Pomeranian99. Excellent. The long story behind that. I will, I will follow it. you immediately. Clive Thompson, thank you so much for all of your time this afternoon. This has been outstanding and really enjoyable. I'm going to check out your books and your other pieces and look forward to talking to you again soon. Great conversation, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.